Hello, my name is Elliot Wesselborg, and I will be having a conversation with Leopoldo Bloom for the New York City Transoral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 30th, 2020, and as a result of social distancing due to COVID-19, this interview is being recorded remotely. So hi, it's good to be talking with you. Same here. Yeah, so if you want to start by introducing yourself and um, sharing how you identify. Okay. Uh, my name is Leopoldo Bloom, and I guess I identify as, as a trans male. Uh, I use he and him pronouns. Yeah, and um, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like? Okay. So yeah, I identify as a native New Yorker who uh, who spent most of you know, I, I spent most of my life outside of New York City, but I'm, I'm pretty much a New York guy. Like, you know, it's out of, you know, living at different parts of the country. It's, it's pretty, you know, I'm, I'm one of those New Yorkers who's, who are always in exile from New York City, but I'm, I'm you know, I don't know, a New Yorker through and through. So I, I grew up, I was born in 1977 uh, in uh, Astoria, New York. That's where my, my family lives. Uh, my father was born there and I grew up four blocks away from, from him. My, my parents met when they moved. My mom moved on the same street. She's a, uh, I'm first generation American. My mom uh, grew up in, uh, in Italy and, and uh, immigrated here in the 60s when she was 16. So, um, so yeah, I grew up in Astoria during in the, I guess, late 70s, 80s and 90s. Uh, I went to Catholic school. Um, I went to, yeah, and then I went to uh, Bard College in upstate New York. I, I started there in 1995. Um, uh, I'm an artist and I, and, uh, I went to Bard to, to study experimental film. And I came out, well, I had, I had a girlfriend in high school. And as everyone put it, everyone knew that I had a girlfriend, but they knew that they shouldn't know. <laughs> so. So it was kind of on the DL, no one said anything. My teachers knew, uh, as they put it, they were like, yeah, you're really nice to her. It's, it's really kind of, everyone knew, but it was very unspoken. And then, you know, I, I, I guess, quote unquote, came out in college and came out to my parents, I guess, uh, when I was a junior in college, I was always afraid of, you know, not, uh, you know, having my tuition pulled, <laughs> basically. So I kind of, waited until the last minute until they were fully invested in me from gra graduating. Um, but, you know, when I was in school and there was always, I don't know, it, it, it's hard to articulate, but like, you know, when I transitioned or, or when I started transitioning, I'll never forget, I told my, my, my old college roommate when I transitioned in 1999, maybe like six months after we graduated, that I was trans. And, you know, we were drinking and she was drunk and, and she was so happy for me. She said, oh, I'm so happy. Now we know why you're damaged. I'm like, we always knew you were gay. I'm like, you had issues dating. But like, it was kind of like, oh, like you found this golden, you know, the, you found this missing piece. Like that it was the thing. And, and I guess like how I experienced, how I kind of explained transitioning was that like, you know, even though I came out as gay, there was always this like, one thing stopping me from 
self-actualization. There was always this missing part. And even though I went around saying, oh, I'm gay, or like, this is who I sleep with, they, it just, the getting comfortable with myself, feeling okay, it just, I never got there, you know? And there was always this kind of thing that was lacking, you know, and that even though I, you know, was okay with acknowledging who I slept with uh, at the time, it just, there was always this missing part. And, uh, and I, I think for me, like the first, there was, there was another trans guy on campus. He was out and, you know, he went to San Francisco and he was kind of more of an outgoing uh, extrovert uh, about being trans. And, you know, for the time, I guess the late nineties, it was a kind of a big thing. There weren't that many trans people uh, in general, let alone on campus, even though it was a very like liberal school, it, it did not have a queer scene at all. It was, you know, it was a very, very small place. Um, but I think the first time I kind of, it kind of clicked that I may be trans was when I, I read uh, Female Masculinities uh, by, at the time, uh, Judith Haberstam. And it was like kind of the first book that really kind of detailed how, um, how being, I guess, you know, at the time there was always this, this, you know, it kind of really detailed the difference between like being, I guess, identifying as like a butch lesbian, which I really didn't, I was, you know, I was, I was a dyke. I wasn't, you know, femme at all, but I didn't really partake in that kind of gendered presentation, you know, and it talked a lot about, uh, I guess, the continuum of female masculinity and that being di different than, I guess, gender dysphoria. Which, which for me, like, it, it kind of really hit the nail on the head. And it, it, and it talked about an experience that, like, I, I very much identified with. You know, I think, like, for me, I'm like, I never, I, I don't know, I never wanted to be a butch lesbian. And, like, I, and there was actually even a part of me that abhorred that, you know, abhorred that kind of presentation of female masculinity. Um, because it wasn't, it, it kind of, it pointed to a void in a way, you know, and it, and it was a way that I didn't feel comfortable presenting, you know, and, and I know that like, while I didn't really feel bad about same sex attraction, I really did feel bad about my presentation. And that I, I never, I didn't, I never felt comfortable in that area. Um, so that, that book uh, really kind of, you know, I, I underlined huge, you know, it's just, look, I don't even know if I still have the copy, but, you know, it was definitely like well-worn with a lot of, you know, writing in the, in the margins. So, you know, in my, in my kind of final year of college, I was like, okay, you know, it, it was always in the back of my head, like, you know, once I'm done with school, once I, I, I finished my senior project, then, then I'll transition, then I'll deal with that kind of stuff. And, and I actually did that. Like I finished college, I stayed up there for a couple of months and started like talking to like supportive friends and asking them to call me by male pronouns and a new name. Um, and that, you know, it kind of slowly kind of gained momentum, you know, that like once you're seen by a couple of close people, then it's easier for you to be seen by others. So I guess in the fall of 1999, I moved back to New York City 
stayed with my parents for a bit and then moved to a loft in, in, in Bushwick. Um, and, you know, I, I studied experimental film and was a filmmaker um, in college and I, I continued to pursue that afterwards. I found some, you know, I, I kind of started hanging out with like the queer experimental filmmakers who uh, would program the mixed festival, the New York Gay and Lesbian Experimental Film Festival. And at the time, uh, we would have shows and screenings out of a, a space called uh, Dumba in Brooklyn. Uh, that, I don't know, that's a, uh, it's, uh, I guess, a queer collective space that was around in the late 90s. There was queer eruption there. There was uh, uh, a, a screening venue called Brooklyn Babylon Cinema. And I remember that being, I guess, a very, it, it was a very, it was an open space. I can't really say, you know, in hindsight, you know, even little breadcrumbs were, was, were great, you know. Um, and I remember that was the first time I saw a bathroom that said male, female, trans, you know, which is in 1999, that's a huge thing. Um, so I, I, you know, I was there. Oh, you were about to say, ask I was just a question. Say, um, who are some of the other people involved in that scene? So Scott Barry lived there. Um, uh, he was kind of like one of the organizers. Um, I can't remember the, la the names of the other people there at the time. Uh, I do know that one of the members of the, there was, there was a big drag king scene there. I think the, one of the members of the, the Backstreet Boys, like a cover drag band, lived there at the time. I really didn't, it was very, I never really hung out with, with lesbians or butch dykes. I always hung out with gay men. Like even in, not so much, yeah, even in college too. Like I was never, never socialized with lesbians. I remember even, you know, alumni groups after I graduated being like, why didn't you hang out with me? And they were like, you were never one of us. Like it was like, we all knew about you, but you just, you weren't a part of us. And, and um, so that, those are the people kind of that I hung out with. Stephen Kent Jusek, I don't know if I mentioned, he was, he was the person who put on Brooklyn Babylon cinema. And uh, at the time, they, there was a, a, a show in, of experimental film at the Whitney. And uh, two people, Brian Fry, who I was close to, you know, knew pretty well and hung out with. He was an experimental filmmaker. And Bradley Eros, who's, who's still big in the experimental film scene in New York City, they were putting on this show at the Whitney. And it was kind of like, you know, I had this kind of grand title, like experimental film for the past hundred years. Um, and of course I wasn't, I didn't, my, my films weren't in there. And there was a kind of this kind of reaction that a lot of what they were curating and like showing in this wide uh, kind of exclusive overarching six month show wasn't, you know, wasn't LGBT or, or female friendly. So, so basically I had my first, my, my first person show in New York, uh, was June, it was January 2000. Um, and I chose that as the date to, uh, 
public, publicly come out as trans. So I asked them, you know, I changed my name. I was going under Lisa Christ. All of my uh, film and promotional materials were, were under that. And I was like, oh, can you present me as he? And can you um, uh, call me Lee Christ at, at this space? So that was, and that was actually a really easy way to come out rather than like talking to people, just kind of like introducing myself in that way. So in the press release, uh, they actually called out uh, the Whitney Museum and called them czars, the czar, something, something like really kind of inflammatory, right? And this was like literally a faxed press release. That's, there was really no, in, there was internet, but you didn't use it in that way. But anyway, Long story short, I came out there, but I was also offered a show at the Whitney after that show to be included because we insulted the Whitney in the press release, <laughs> you know? And, and, and I guess the reason I, I, I tell that is because there was a, a really big kind of uproar uh, because the Whitney decided after that program that kind of excluded uh, a lot of people, they decided they were going to do women of an experimental film. And I, and they asked me to be a part of it because the press release they got was female. And then I transitioned and I remember explaining to them about it, not hearing anything back and then just assuming whatever. But I ended up having my, my uh, a, a one man show in that program in, in 2000, basically. It was like a 45 minute uh, live performance of uh, hand cranked portraits. And it was, it was a pretty big deal, you know, to, to like, you know, show my senior project a year out of college at the Whitney. Um, so, yeah, so I, you know, that was kind of my first few years uh, out of school, kind of as an early artist. Uh, and while, like, I was able to show at the Mix Festival, uh, in hindsight, like, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was definitely like a, and, and probably still is a very kind of uh, segregated scene, you know, of like LGBT experimental film and kind of like more kind of mainstream uh, experimental film. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my early, I guess, artistic professional history of that time. How did you meet all those people and come into that scene? I guess it was just basically through showing my work. Uh, there were all these kind of Lower East Side. I remember showing my, uh, uh, showing some of my early films at uh, these kind of like little uh, pop-up theaters in the Lower East Side. And just like slowly kind of showing my work and kind of getting in, introduced to people who wanted to like curate me. And even though the content of my work wasn't, I'm like, I had some self portraits and portraits of friends, but even though the content of my work wasn't LGBT focused, there was this idea of like, oh yeah, you need to show your films here, you know? So Stephen Kent Jusick was very big in, in those days of especially getting, uh, kids out of school, out of college, who just got into New York to kind of show their work there. Um, yeah. Were you always like intending to go back to New York City after leaving college or graduating? Oh, yeah. College? Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm like, I wasn't, I didn't even want to leave New York City. I remember being like very like, oh, I want to stay in New York City and live in the, in New York. But for the kind of film work that I did, there just wasn't any, uh, I like the best school available was upstate. There wasn't, there, there weren't that many, I guess, uh, experimental film programs in New York City, or even at that time, you know, it was kind of like, oh no, don't go to NYU, don't go to SVA, you know, go up there. Were you um, also involved in like more trans-specific spaces at that point? You know, as far as I know, there weren't really trans-specific spaces. I'm like, so dumb, Dumbo, no, no, Dumbo. I did apply, I had a dog <laughs> and I did apply to live there and I, and, I, and, and I wanted to like be a part of that space. And at that time being a, a big part of, you know, being a part of that collective was living there and the rent was cheap, they had a dark room, but they passed on me because, you know, as it was, there was a lot of, I guess, they wanted to get more of a mix of people. And there were a lot of kind of uh, female, masculine, white people at the time. So I wasn't in there. Um, so, and I guess the other spaces that I knew of, I'm like, there was a trans support group at the center that I went to. Um, and that was when the LGBT center was under construction and it was in the, and it had a temporary location in uh, the meatpacking district, I think on Little West 13th Street. Um, but I wasn't, and I remember seeing Dean Spade around he did a lot of like work with queers for economic justice around welfare reform. But in terms of uh, trans spaces, there, there wasn't anything that I was kind of aware of as specifically trans. I know that like for me, I would go to those kind of weekly support groups. Uh, a lot of the people were more kind of, I wouldn't say mainstream, but they had jobs, you know, like they were like, lawyers, teachers, and, you know, I'm like, I went there for like personal reasons, but I kind of really didn't click with a lot of them more because they weren't like on the punk artist side, I guess, if that's, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, no, I, I didn't, I'm like, I didn't really meet other trans people or wasn't kind of active in those kind of male use. But I also think that also too, is that I pretty much didn't hang out with lesbian identified people in New York City, mostly gay men. And how was that in, like, at that point in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, being a trans man among mainly cis gay men? I mean, it was interesting. Like, for, so when I first came out, a lot of times people had problems. I'm like, I mean, it's interesting. Like, there wasn't even the word of, like, a lot of people messed up my pronouns all of the time. And there wasn't even, I can't even think of it right now because I'm in that time period, but there wasn't even the word uh, to say, what's the word for messing up someone's pronoun again? Uh, misgendering, is that it? Yes, th that word did not exist then. There wasn't even the word cis. We used to say biomet, right? So there wasn't even that word. So, there, so people used to come up with the language. I remember... I'm like, Stephen Kent was great, but I remember Stephen Kent saying, Lee is coming, and he, like, he would emphasize it, like, really, and I would understand it would be a way for, like, him to tell other people in the room that I went by he, 
by he pronouns, but it was it was a really it was it was odd. I'm like people had the best of intentions, but I found that a lot of people would call me they and use third person, and that was this was all predating they as a preferred pronoun. And like I told people my preferred pronoun was he, but a lot of times people called me they as a way of like not calling me she, but as kind of like this third place of like, well, I can't call you he because that doesn't feel comfortable. So I'm just going to call you they. So that happened a lot. And, you know, in, in, in a way it was like, I was, I, I was never really seen as male in those cultures uh, or in those kind of social male use because I wasn't fuckable. You know, I could watch gay porn with them. We can talk about like uh, gay male art and gay male films, but because I wasn't a sex object and I wasn't engaging in, the, in, in sexual interactions, I was never really thought of as male. Were you like dating at all at that time? No. I'm like, not even women. Like, I, I would sometimes, I, I was never a big dater. Um, <laughs> I did, I did have, I'm like, off and on, I, I would um, date uh, women or try to, you know, date women. But at that point, I wasn't uh, that sexually active. So when you um, were deciding to maybe leave New York City, what did that look like for you? What decisions went into that? Or like what factors went into that? Well, I, I was in New York. I had like the cheapest rent known to man. I was paying $250 for like, I, like, I, had, I had the best deal on a loft. It was like, you know, 50 cents per square foot. I built a dark room with the money from, from the Whitney. I had like a what do you call it? Huge space to do artwork. But it just, culturally, it just, I'm like, at that time in the early, in 99, 2000, it just feels like the city was really left. Like there weren't that many young people my age around because the, the, the city was just too expensive. Everyone was either in Philly or it just, to put it frankly, like the, the queer scene there was just, very professional, very nine to five, um, and not punk in, in, in most kind of ways. And I don't identify as a punk, but uh, I don't like to work for a living. You know, <laughs> like it's just, so it was just kind of one of those things. Um, and then in, I think it was in, in the summer of 2000, I went to Portland, Oregon, actually to visit a straight friend of mine from college. And I just fell in love. Like it was like, she lived with a bunch of lesbians and it was the first time that like she told everyone about my transition. She was like, you know, whatever. And it was like literally the first time in my life that I was seen, you know? And I think it was one of those things that like in hindsight, I didn't know that like, you know, my gay male friends from like Dumba and like the Lower East Side and whatnot, I didn't really feel like I was out of place until I was able to like, know what feeling in place was like and and in portland at that time in 2000 i'm like their queer scene you know and especially the queer scene of san francisco people were transitioning left and right physically you know socially new york was so behind especially in the 
the trans masculine uh, side of things, New York City was so behind the curve, you know, uh, in that respect. And like New York City had a huge kind of drag king lesbian uh, scene that I didn't really jive with. Uh, but like to me, seeing drag kings was just like traumatizing. <laughs> you know, it's like I would never pencil in a mustache. Like that would just be this way to like, I like it would just be, it would be horrible. Like to go around saying, I can't grow my own facial hair. I'm just going to like pencil in. You know, it was, it, it, you know, it, it has that same kind of uh, disparity that like, I guess, trans women and drag queens have where you're like, I would never like, point out in public that I'm not masculine and I need to, you know, so it was just an area that I just didn't, I didn't kind of find a place in. But when I went to Portland, Oregon, it was just like this vibrant queer youth culture that was literally, you know, kind of out of the mainstream where it was just acceptable. And I, and uh, I just felt at home there mostly by like, just, I guess it was the first time that I was around uh, a lesbian community that was accepting of trans men. Um, so I, I went back to New York and it was just this weird thing where I would just like visit all of the time. And, and, and then uh, after September 11th, uh, yes, so it's September 11th was the fall of 2001. Uh, I was still in New York, kind of really dissatisfied with the quote unquote community or friends there. After September 11th, I was like, fuck this. You know, it wasn't so much that everyone was moving out of town, but, you know, that type of like massive uh, death and just now or never. It was this kind of now or never moment where it was like, I always knew in hindsight that I would transition away from New York City because I don't think I would be able to transition in the same area as my family because they were very anti-gay and not really accepting of my uh, gender queerness. I just knew I couldn't feel comfortable in the same the town, but I was always kind of prolonging it, you know, postponing it. So I Oregon, uh, so it was the summer of 2002. When you started looking into physical transition, what did that look like for you? Well, that, that's a good question. So they had transgender, I think Carrie was in charge. I don't know her last name, but Carrie was in charge of the counseling at the LGBT center and the groups there. She was a trans woman there. And then they also had uh, sliding scale therapy at Callum Moore. But Callum Moore, I'm like, I'm still not a fan of Callum Moore. Callum Moore, even that days, had very shady history where it would be like, I mean, even the guys who did have health insurance, they had to like, you know, they couldn't use it. They had to like, you know, shell out thousands of dollars to transition. And um, while I was in New York and I was able to like see someone with sliding scale, they were, they were a bit much about like, oh, well, you need to pay us money every, even though it's sliding scale, we need to like, you to pay us like, you know, upfront $20 per visit. So it was always this weird thing of like, we didn't, like, I didn't know if I transitioned how much medical debt I would get into. 
because the sliding scale was kind of uh, obtuse, right? So the person who, your therapist were like, fine, don't worry about it. But then you would just like, there would be this, always in my loft, there was this pile of bills from everyone who lived there, from Cal and Laura. And you're like, I thought it was sliding scale. Why am I getting billed, you know? So it was, you know, and, and so it, was, it wasn't a very, it was an option, but it, it didn't really seem like, like it did seem like you would get into like medical debt, you know? And, uh, but when I moved to, to Portland, Oregon, it was like public benefits were like as easy as pie. Like everyone, because of a, a, a federal um, grant, because of the, the, the collapse of the timber industry, basically they had a version of Obamacare that everyone had. So the minute, literally the minute I got off the plane, like two weeks after I signed up for food stamps and OHP, which was the Oregon health plan. And I was able to like get trans coverage like the first month out. It was just, it was like remarkable how easy it was. What kinds of stuff did they cover under there? Everything. Everything. So they covered like, uh, they covered your testosterone. They covered um, seeing your, your doctor. And this was like 2002. They covered free blood work. I mean, it was akin to like San Francisco, uh, probably even better because it was less, uh, less people needed it. You know, it was less, un, you know, the wait time was shorter. Um, there was a place called the Burnside Health Clinic uh, where you just go, you know, it was just kind of, you know, a, a community public health center. It took like, I think three months to get uh, an appointment, but that's compared to like other waiting times. Like that's not really that, especially a new client, um, you know, that wasn't that much. And I actually ended up so writing a book about it, um, a memoir, and the, the name of my uh, memoir is, is called uh, How to Transition on 63 Cents a Day. And it basically talks about that move, moving from New York, to Oregon, you know, for a supportive community, but also like to transition on 63 cents a day. Like it was very low cost. Um, and I, I, you know, I, part of the move was, you know, I dislocated from my family, the art scene in New York, meaningful employment, uh, but I was able to like physically transition, you know, there. What else were you doing at that point in Oregon in terms of like art, other things? Well, I was still, I was shooting film. I was making movies. Uh, it took me, I think, a year or two. I started teaching experimental film at the Northwest Film Center. Um, yeah, yeah. Going back to, um, like, getting hormones and everything, what yeah. were the requirements for getting on hormones at that point? Or like, what, what did you have to do? So traditionally, you had to have a, a quote-unquote therapist letter. Um, and I remember seeing a provider who didn't need that because uh, did she need it? I think I, I can't remember. So a lot of it was just a therapist letter. Um, yeah. And how are you finding like who to go to for all this? Good question. So they had zines, uh, little these like DIY zines, um, and they had a list of numbers of doctors that you can call, and 
what insurance they take and, and all that stuff. So I remember just calling one and just being, I mean, I think that was it before I, before I was, I was on the wait list for a clinic, but before I did, I found in the suburbs, this endocrinologist and I asked her, you know, because I had Medicaid or OHP, I was like, Oh, are you taking any new clients? And they're like, no, not with OHP. And I was like, you know, I'm trans. I don't have this and that. So I ended up getting uh, an appointment there and, you know, and they were, you know, and, and I, and at that point, I'm like, at that point, I was like two years, I was already a socialized male. And I, you know, and I, I, I discussed this a lot in my book. It was always this thing where I really didn't want to physically transition. And I think a lot of it was just this fear of uh, cancer, of like health complications, of being attached to this like of side effects. There were all these kind of like urban myths of like being aggro and like having, you know, just all of these kind of like, it just seemed like a big thing. And it was always like, well, and I wouldn't say that it was looked down upon to transition, but there was always this idea of like the noble savage or the noble uh, genderqueer trans person who didn't have to transition, you know, who didn't have to take hormones. And, and even, it was funny at the time, like I would go down to San Francisco a lot because I had a lot of friends there. And every, all of the, all of the, people there, all the queers there, they weren't on tea. Like that generation, like the tribate people, Silas, uh, Howard, um, and all of those ace, I remember ace, I had a lot of friends from New York, I visited them, they wouldn't see me in Portland, so I'd go down to San Francisco to see my friends from New York. But a lot of those people, kind of like an older generation of me, you know, they, they identified as either butch or, or whatever, or genderqueer. They weren't on TRT. It was kind of like the younger guys. So, and, and it was always this thing of like, oh, well, you don't really need, it was, it, was, it was too mainstream. It was too like giving in and assimilating to go on testosterone. But I think the guys of my generation, so I think I'm 43 now, the people who are in like their 50s or late 40s, it took them a while to like not go on tea, but it was kind of like a younger, younger, I guess it was more popular with the younger guys uh, to go on testosterone. Where were some of those like urban myth type things? Where the where were those originating from? Oh, it was it was just like people would shoot the shit like you would be like, uh, you know, it, they were just. Uh, kind of like old wives' tales, but for trannies, you know? It, a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to get very angry and upset and you're going to be rageful and like punch things. Acne was a huge thing. Everyone was a fake. I never got it, but I never got acne when I was in high school anyway. So, you know, there were all these kind of, uh, I have this in my book. There was this idea that the hormones would fight in you that you would all, your estrogen would always be battling with your, the testosterone in your body. And I remember asking that of my doctor. My doctor was like, mm, no, that doesn't happen. And they were like, you know, basically we're, we're supplying, uh, we're supplying your, your secondary hormones from the outside. And there's a protein in your body that once there's a, 
once it is deficient in hormones, it, it signals the body, it's time for you to make estrogen. And she was like, because you're always going to be constantly injecting yourself with, with testosterone, that call is never made. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I had this idea that like, it was going to be these battling, I didn't pay attention during sex ed nor biology. I always had this idea of like battling hormones. And a lot of people thought it was a carcinogen too. But I think also there was just this great distrust over the medical complex, you know, of just like, you know, this is, this was a long time ago, but like people didn't want to pay thousands of dollars to get their blood work and then be attached to this thing, you know? And it was also, you know, it was very scary. And, and, and I think a lot of people, I think it was also, there was a bias in the lesbian community that once people transitioned, they were like different. They were going to go off and, and have partners and be straight couples. So I think there was also this fear of, of and it was rightly so, that you would lose the connection of your base. Like you would lose your, your female, uh, your dating pool, the support. Yeah. Um, do you know of anyone at that time who was like maybe getting hormones outside of a doctor's office? Is that a thing? No. Like I remember uh, we used to have like stockpiles that we would in a pinch like give to people. And I remember I had some and I offered it to some. But specifically in Oregon, um, I mean, it's always been uh, – Specifically in Oregon, it wasn't hard to get a prescription. And it was really cheap, too. There was a compounding factory at, or a compounding pharmacy in Oregon that, in, that literally was everyone used. I'm like, up until like five years ago, everyone used. It's called Stroker's. And most people would like get it. And I would just bike up there. It was up, up a big hill. It was, it was fairly easy to kind of, uh, quote, unquote, uh, get a prescription. So not a lot of people had, quote unquote, like off the illegal stuff. Were you thinking at that point about anything with like legal documents and what's matching or what any of that's saying? Was that on your radar? Um, it was. I think I kind of, when did I get it? Um, yeah, so, it, it, and it was fairly easy to change my name. Uh, I changed my name in, in I want to say 2003. Um, I went, I had an artist residency in Toronto and, um, and I, and I, and I got my documents changed for that. I didn't have my passport changed and I, and, but I did get my driver's license changed. Um, yeah. What was Toronto like? Oh, it was fun. I was only there for like three months. Okay. I, I was turned around at the border because uh, they knew I was trans. I gave them the, my documents because I didn't have a passport. And they're like, why don't you have a passport? And I was like, I'm not going to get a passport with like the, you know, so I showed them, you know, at that time, you, even though it was after September 11th, you could still go across the, uh, the border with your birth certificate. So I had to have my birth certificate, my change of name form. Anyway. They were, they just saw me and they were like, you're like poor, you're a punk, you're trans and you're coming here to, for our health care. 
So they're like, we're going to let, you know, it was this big thing, but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really didn't spend enough time in that, in the queer scene there. So like, but, but yeah, it was fun. How did they finally let you over the border after that? Well, they did let me over the border, but they gave me this thing that said I had to leave in two weeks or else I would be like kicked out. And not that many people get it. And, and the funny thing is that I uh, was awarded uh, a grant by the Canadian Council for the Arts to go there. So it was this kind of, but there was just like, it was like this visa gray area. So they, they ended up, the arts organization there just ended up clearing it up. But it was just this weird thing where they saw that I was, I had a lot of stuff there. And I just told them that I was passing through on my way to uh, New York City back home, but they didn't, they didn't buy it. What, so you're coming back to Portland. What's going on for you there? Are you still working on art? Are there other grants you're pursuing or anything? Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been working on art, I guess, you know, continuously. Um, you know, it, it, there wasn't too many grants available. I don't know. I'm like, so I started, I started testosterone, but it took a really long time for it to, to work like for me to like physically pass. It took like three or four years. And I ended up getting Crohn's disease just because of the stress of, I guess, moving and my parents and my family were very hostile toward me physically transitioning and the way my voice was changing over the phone. So it took me, I would say, even though I started testosterone, it took me a good like three or four years to like pass. And even when I did quote unquote pass, it wasn't, I passed as a trans guy, you know? It took me a really long time to be stealth. Um, I think maybe I, I, I started in 2002, and I think I was only able to quote unquote be stealth maybe in 2006, which is a long, long time for a trans person or trans male to like, you know. And I, and I think it was mostly just I, I didn't, the thing with Crohn's was I got Crohn's during the same time that I got, uh, that I transitioned. So it was a, a really, kind of difficult time to be like, what's happening? Has this, is this doing with the hormones? And then I just kind of, it ended up resolving itself as, as me having Crohn's and uh, pubescence, or I guess people in puberty with Crohn's don't go through puberty. They have a delayed puberty because their body doesn't have enough nutrients to go through puberty. So it took a while for the hormones to like take effect. And that the hormones didn't create Crohn's, but it was kind of like this kind of, you know, package deal that it all happened at once. So, um, yeah. Were the doctors you were seeing for that, were they transcompetent in any way? I, there was what, yeah, they were good enough, you know? Um, they just didn't know. I'm like, I remember one doctor being like, you know, trans healthcare is more of an art form than a science. And, and that really kind of upset me. But it was, you know, they didn't know what was going on, you know? And they were also just like, there's no studies. You know, you kind of basically had to sign away all whatever things. So it was just kind of like the great unknown, you know? And I think, especially for me, people, and I was like so frustrated because I wasn't getting the same results as other guys, they were all like, their hands were in the air, you know? So like, 
I put the two and two together with the Crohn's after going to a Crohn's support group. And there was a little flyer about the little teenagers, you know? And I was like, oh wait, that makes sense. It's like, if I don't have enough nutrients and all of these kids with Crohn's are like having a delayed puberty, it means that like, that's why these, this transition is taking so long, you know, is because I just wasn't healthy enough, you know? But it, it was a hard time. And then, you know, I got my, in those days, uh, you know, I, I, I never had, I never had uh, a chest uh, or breast. Like I was like a, maybe a size A. I was always binding. And it wasn't really a big thing for me, you know? Um, I'm actually, I actually liked binding, not liked it, but like, it was like, it, it wasn't a huge thing. It wasn't like this, oh my God, I have this huge rack or it's so uncomfortable. But it was kind of, you know, um, it was like this thing that I knew that like, it was just one last thing, but I was very cheap. I didn't really have that much money. I didn't want to work full time. But uh, a good friend of mine loaned me some money that she made growing marijuana to put as like the down payment of it. And in 2006, I had top surgery. So I, I put the, all of it on my credit card or it was, I think it was, it was in total, it was like 8,000. And I went to Baltimore uh, to Beverly Fisher. She was like one of the top in those, in those days. And, uh, and it was a really amazing experience because I was always one of those guys who didn't think I needed top surgery because I actually quote unquote didn't, you know, I didn't, I remember everyone around town being like, oh, have you seen Lee? What does he look like? Or, you know, like he looks exactly the same. It's just like no difference, you know? And like, it just meant that I didn't have to bind and, and whatever. But it, it, it was one of those things that like, I just didn't know. I'm mean, like, I got the uh, keyhole, which was basically liposuction. So I don't have any surgery scars or, you know, but it was one of those things that like, I just didn't know what it would be like because I, I never had that. I never had a thing where I could take off my, my shirt and be okay with it. And so I didn't really know that I was, what I was missing, you know? And how did you find out about um, like Dr. Fisher in Maryland? Who are you looking to for names of where to go? So at that time they had like internet databases where you could get to see, but it was all word of mouth. Um, I remember I was kind of very lucky. You know, I, I, I'm not a big relationship person and I didn't have, a, uh, I wasn't dating one, anyone at the time. And it was kind of customary that like, you know, you would go to these different cities and locales to get this surgery done and you, you kind of needed someone there. So another trans guy from Portland, you know, I paid for his airfare and stuff and he helped me out to do it. So he went to her. Uh, and he, he used to live in the Baltimore area, but it was kind of like known among people like in inner circles, like Brownstein, there were a couple, it was mostly like no, no variety and just people got so good at the, there were certain people who were top at their, of their field. They were the most expensive. They weren't local, but they just did it so often that they knew what they were doing. I don't know what people do these days, but it is when, when insurances started paying for top surgery, it was like, you would get anyone and who knows if how many top surgeries they did for F to M's, but it was like, at least you weren't paying for it. But in those days, like 
you know, 2006, 2007, it was like, you were going to a person who literally was getting everyone in the entire country and literally specialized it. And, and, you know, and that was something that once insurances started paying for it, or once people started going to local people, they had, I wouldn't say they didn't have good results. They just weren't, um, in terms of being sculpture and like the masculinization, they just, they were just more of just removing breast tissue. You know, they weren't as like high quality, I've been doing this nonstop for three years and I'm a sculptor. You know, it didn't have that kind of uh, thing. It was just like, oh, well, my insurance is paying for it. They're local. It's all going to come out, come out kind of thing. I also want to go back to the idea of like passing for a minute. Um, were there times where you were like worried about physical safety or anything from not passing? No, no. I'm like Portland was pretty. Uh, yeah, even in New York City, I, I didn't really feel that physical. I mean, the main thing was just jobs. Like I didn't really enter that many job fields just because the terrain, you know, who wants to be a serve food. I couldn't be a server. I had friends who worked in restaurants and they made tons of great money, but that option wasn't ever open to me uh, until I physically passed. Even teaching, you know, teaching was really hard as genderqueer in that time, you know? So it was just, it was just like this constant like minefield. But even in Portland, like, I, especially when you live in these kind of like liberal bubbles, like, I would, even when I did pass, everyone knew I was just a trans guy. So I was never really treated like a cisgender guy. It was just like, oh yeah, you're a trans guy. So, so it was just, I think it was just more of like social relations, you know, and kind of like being in the world and like most importantly, employment. Were you applying for jobs or were, was it just kind of like knocking it off before things even could get? Yeah, it was like self-selecting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I, I did, it was just, there were certain fields, like I even remember explaining to this, like I didn't even like go back to like college reunions because I didn't want to explain to people everything. You know, it was just one of those things that like, it was just such a, it was just such an ordeal to like keep in touch with the past. It was just easier just to go there and get some crappy job and just, you know, be done with it. What brought you to DC? when you decide to move? I applied, so I applied to graduate school. I, I always wanted to be, you know, I was always teaching film. I was kind of, and in college, I was always reared as like, you're gonna be a professor. You know, I graduated top of my class. And so I, 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 got, a, 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 I got into a graduate school at UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And it just wasn't, it wasn't a good program. And I dropped out after the first semester. And I just ended up staying there just because of the recession. I'm like, Oregon, even now, but like in those days, Oregon was so hard just to even find a job, uh, any job, that going back there during the recession, I just knew that it just wasn't, uh, I just wouldn't find any work. So I stuck out the recession there for three years. What kind of like community did you find there? None. It was, <laughs> I'm like, now I think it's a little different. I'm like, they have a big bear scene. And I left there in 2011. 
And I was like slowly getting a part of the bear scene, but you know, DC is so conservative, you know? And I think also the DC scene is, the radical parts are in the parts of color, right? So it's like, I, I, after a couple of years there, I started hanging out with more people of color and there was, so their kind of queer, their kind of like queer radical scene is more on the, the people of color side um, or in that time period, but also in that part of, even though Obama was there or started there, it was just, and also there's no arts there. They, at that point, there wasn't that many arty, it was just culturally like that. It, was, it wasn't a kind of good fit. And it takes a while to like, I remember when I left town, I knew people, but it was, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it, Oregon was just so much easier, you know? So. So you're coming back, like, are you coming back to New York City intermittently um, during these years? Like, what yeah. are you noticing, what are you noticing that's the same or has changed since you left in the early 2000s? You know, I think it was, I mean, so it's like, so Dumba disappeared. I guess the thing that I noticed more was that, you know, I think there were, there was more, I mean, people would kind of come and go that I knew there, but no one really stayed because of its lack of affordability, right? So people would do stints in New York, but it just was not, it just was not worth it. You know, it, it just was such a long haul and so much, like even my straight friends were just like, would burn out, you know? So there was always that thing of like, well, New York's good for your career and New York's great, but not for people my age, you know, because it's like, it would always be this thing like, you know, if you didn't get in on this like rent control or it just, it always felt like people were just chasing something that didn't exist anymore, you know, and that everyone was burned out from working full time, but they really couldn't take part in New York, you know? And, and that a lot of the artistic opportunities, it's like people couldn't have it because they didn't have time to make work. And like, for me, my primary purpose was like to do artwork and I couldn't do that in New York, you know? So, but it was always this thing where even though I was doing artwork in Oregon, I just, it wasn't, it was always on the margins. You know, it wasn't being seen in New York. I lost a lot of my connections and it just, yeah, it was just one of those things. So, and even like coming back there in 2015, it was just, you know, it was just the people who could afford to live there. Can you talk a little bit more about your work and what, inspires you there and what you've done okay well so like i don't know most of my films are the best way to explain my films are like they're um still images that move so they're silent non-narrative i started out doing landscapes and then did a lot of portraits either self-portraits or portraits of other people they're like hand processed they're they're all i work exclusively in in you know, photographic emulsion and celluloid. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and a, a lot of my work is kind of more personal, diaristic, diaristic, kind of more on the, not overt queer content, but like, 
I would kind of categorize them as like home movies, you know, of just kind of slice of life diaristic. And then when I moved to Oregon, uh, I started getting into writing and I started doing uh, letter, uh, letterpress printing and wanted to do a memoir and kind of uh, transition my studio practice. The last film that I made was in 2011. And I just, I wasn't even able to screen it anywhere. Even though I, I had previous uh, success with my other work, at that point, I just wasn't putting work out on a yearly basis that I couldn't get my last film to be screened anywhere, not even in Portland. And part of it too was that it was 35 millimeter. And at, at this point, everything, most of the things are, are kind of digital projection. Um, so I guess from, you know, 2011 to like now, I primarily work in, in book arts. Uh, so I, I learned how to letterpress print and, and kind of was a, a self-taught book artist. Uh, in 2013, I self-published a, a limited edition book called How to Transition on 63 Cents a Day. Um, and that took a long time to write. It took a long time to, to do it. And, you know, and I also, so I, I, I published that in 2013. And then uh, after I published that, I, I tried to apply to some graduate schools because I just had a very... Uh, hard time getting into graduate school. A lot of it was because of, of changing genres, but a lot of it too is that there was no more, I guess, experimental film. So instead of doing film and video, I was like, well, let me just do a, a general art, book arts kind of thing. And then in, in uh, 2014, I, I was offered uh, a, a, a big, uh, a, a, 80% scholarship to go to Arizona State University. So I left Portland, Oregon in the summer of 2015 to go to ASU, Arizona State University. Um, yeah. And do you want to talk more about your experience there? Um, yeah, I think I, I want to just take a quick break to go to, to get some water. Of course. So, um, so yeah, it was a big thing. So I went to Arizona State University um, in their MFA program. Um, it was much better than the the one that I went to in Baltimore. It was it was just you know it was like a smorgasbord. It was a really great experience. It was just like, um, but my first basically like my second month there, I was having these. Uh, these kind of issues, or what, what did I think it was? Basically, my last six months in Portland, I was misdiagnosed with a UTI. And what ended up happening, I've never had a UTI uh, in my life. <laughs> and I went to ASU, the, the clinic, and I was like, you know, I'm having this UTI. And they're like, you're not having a UTI. You're not in pain. You know, this is what, what you're having is trans-related. It wasn't a trans-specific doctor, but he was basically saying like, um uh whatever it is it's 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 shedding of blood due to you know your uterus and this you've been misdiagnosed and that was like huge because i basically two years prior for the first time started working full-time in order to get health insurance in portland oregon in order to get a hysterectomy 
because in, you know, and even now, even with health insurance, it's very hard to get a, health, a hysterectomy uh, covered. And I was 30, 38, 37 at a time. And there was this, and I don't know what the view is right now, but there was this view that you should get one, uh, especially trans men who are sexually active with cisgender men. Um, it's just, it's before you get older, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. And, and I, I had, I was, I thought I was an employee of the city government uh, because I was working for the school board that I wasn't, so I wasn't covered. And I went to, in, I guess in the year 2014, 2013, 15, you know, I would go to Kaiser and I had a, a cool dyke doctor and they would be like, oh yeah, just wait, just wait. The, the board will prove it. And it was just all hogwash. You know, I think even now people don't get them covered, but it was just this idea of like, okay, if I, if I work full time, if I get health insurance, that's not, you know, met Obamacare or whatever that I can get, get it covered. And, you know, I had trans specific doctors and I was presenting these, basically I was like spotting blood and they misdiagnosed it as a UTI. And it was, it was really something else. And I kept on asking them about it. And, you know, I think there was just this general idea of that, like, oh, because I'm in Portland, Oregon, and because my doctors are trans-specific, and I've heard other people with that same experience, like there are other trans guys who, who go to Kaiser in Portland who basically ha ended up having cervical cancer that wasn't, you know. There's just that general thing that you, you, you assume that you're getting care, um, and you're not, you know. And I think especially most, and this, this happened, you know, when I came back to New York, and I'll talk about it, later is that most transgender care is about getting people on hormones but not like long-term care and it's this kind of thing of like okay we check your levels we know there's this pipeline and if you don't fit into that pipeline you just kind of get lost and you also get lost in terms of like other issues like they only see you as like this young trans person who needs to transition and then you kind of age out of that you know um so basically, I ended up being in Phoenix, Arizona, being told, you know, two months or a month, uh, two weeks, my health insurance ended, telling that I have this mysterious thing, whatever. So long story short, I ended up having to um, take the semester off. And like, it was like, I started menstruating for the first time in 13 years, which was psychologically just out of this world to like start cramping. Like it was just, a, I just did not know what was going on. And once again, through the internet, I found a gynecologist who <laughs> out of Scottsdale, Arizona, he was a trip. Uh, but he basically, he, uh, let's just put it this way. He did, he, he accepted Medicaid and he basically made millions in Beverly Hills doing vaginal plastic surgery, like recreating vaginas. And in Scottsdale, he had a very, uh, which is like the posh part of, of Phoenix, had this like booming uh, gynecological uh, vaginal reconstruction slash trans surgery. So I went to him and he's just like, I don't know what's happening. He said, but we can get this hysterectomy covered. Right. He's like, and, and you should have one. He, he was, he's a doctor who believes that trans men should get it. 
And he said, and, and this was whatever what that was appearing, this like endometriosis or whatever, he said, this would be enough for you to get uh, a hysterectomy covered by Obamacare. So, you know, we went through the surgery. Um, and at the time, it was just culturally, I like, I was doing well in school, but my, my little cohort, you know, this little bubble of this like 10 person photo seminar, it was just, it was a, a big cultural clash. You know, I think everyone looks at me and they see like a fully realized cisgender white guy who carries himself off as male. And when I say to people that I don't have support or that I'm marginalized, people really react, uh, especially women, get very uh, upset, you know, and they get very confrontational. And they just, it's just, and, and also it's like, I, I think like after all of these years of presenting male, I just am not aware of how I hold myself, you know? Um, and, I, and, and for most part, people just don't think of trans men as trans. You know, when you say that you're trans, every, like I've had so many people tell me not to get castrated when I tell them I'm trans. You know, because they just, when I tell them that I'm trans, they assume that I'm M, M to F and they try and convince me that I'm really energetically male and that I shouldn't transition. I'm only confused. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm trans male. Like, they're like, oh, I didn't know that, that, it, that, that it went that way. They just don't see it that way. And, and, and it's like, you're for like, you know, to be a trans male, you're, you're forever holding this. You just don't exist. You know, you don't exist on, on so many levels. But anyway, um, right before my surgery, I, uh, I, you know, I, I told my, my, uh, my supervisors and the people in my department that I had to, to uh, reduce my class size. You know, I'm having surgery. I can't be a full-time graduate student and get in her hysterectomy. Long story short, my, my teacher who identified as bisexual at the time told the other students in my class that I took the, that I was taking the semester off and I wasn't enrolled. And this was a big thing because I stipulated specifically not to tell anyone anything, you know? And, you know, it just became this kind of internal uh, academic battle where I was like, listen, I'm going to surgery. I can't talk to you about this right now. I'm, I'm basically like preparing for a camping trip where I'm going to be disabled in two weeks. I'll deal with it later, you know? And they were very upset that I got upset that I was overly sensitive and that I didn't want to tell my peer group that I was having a hysterectomy or even surgery, you know? Shocker that you don't want to talk about your medical information with the whole world. Exactly. And, but I think the biggest thing was, is that, you know, so as, a, as an educator and especially as a, a special ed educator, I know about uh, medical accommodation. So when I was off the bat, I was telling my people, I was like, I need a medical accommodation for PTSD. I don't want to talk about my medical history. And then, you know, it was just like, I was informing people because I knew, and, and, you know, and I tell people, you know, it's more age discrimination too, because it's like, I know these things because I'm a teacher, right? I was going, I went back to school a little too late, you know, in graduate school and in academia, they, they want sheep. You know, they want people who don't know the rules, who uh, abide by whatever. 
So basically I told them, I was like, you know, and I remember in one of my crits, they asked me like, well, why didn't you come to us sooner and tell us that you were having medical problems? And I was like, and I didn't say like, you know, listen, I don't want to talk to, you know, I was like, and I had, I followed the accommodations I had, I went to the disability office. I did all of the right things because that's my job as a special education teachers. I know. And I, I just ignored them because I was like, it's not part of my work right now. I'm not going to tell you why I didn't personally divulge. And I also didn't know what was going on. Like I didn't, I wasn't diagnosed. I didn't know I was going to have to have surgery, you know? So it was literally like, you know, a lot of times people think of disability as something that is set as in not occurring over time. So, but when people have medical issues during school, you don't know what's going on. You don't know the accommodations. And I just, I, the reason I was so proactive with the accommodations is that I was on scholarship. I was a teaching assistant and my performance, my academic performance and everything else was based on that. And I knew that like, maybe I could handle it as a student, but I sure couldn't keep my full ride on it. Um, so long story short is, uh, my surgery, the surgery went well, but I stopped breathing during surgery. And I had to be incubated. I stopped breathing after surgery. Uh, my heart rate went to 140 and I had all of these complications and I was in and out of the ER. So I didn't go back to my class. My teacher looked really bad. <laughs> I guess everyone was like, where's Leo? Where's Leopold? Where is he? She didn't say anything. She knew that I was in and out of the ER, right? And basically what ended up happening was that, um, I ended up, I was basically out of the ER and getting all of these emails from her saying that she didn't like my tone in telling her that I needed space and that I couldn't come to class and explain these things as they were occurring real time. Um, she didn't have any, she, it was just her little world, you know? And uh, while I was getting, while I, and at the time, the director of the School of Art Adrian Yannick, who's an out lesbian, she was my uh, personal confidant. She was very supportive of me and she knew what was going on. She knew that like, that the department didn't like this kind of PC uh, language that I was using. They weren't culturally competent around either issues of disability, but just consent and disclosure, you know? And I think the main thing for me was that I just thought I was going to be back. I'm like, I've had like three or four surgeries and I've bounced back like that. This surgery wasn't that case. And it just wasn't comfortable for me uh, to be receiving all of these emails, putting her saying that I was this bad student. Basically what ended up happening was that I skipped class and I told my other cohorts through Facebook Messenger to tell her that I was not coming to class. And she got very upset. And she said that I needed to tell her, not other people. It was just like this weird thing. And I was just like, like graduate school truancy is this big problem. And she told other people, like literally like at that class, she said, well, he's doing this. He's not enrolled in full time. He took the semester off. I didn't know what she told people, but all I know was that after I skipped class, I got this email from her that was really intense saying, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know if you can like be a part of the class. And I was like, you know, I, I really apologize. I said, you know, it totally 
went over my head. I'm sorry I didn't contact you directly. I just didn't want, I just didn't want you to start the class without me. So I just did this like massive start the class without me. I apologize. I'll find out what I made up, whatever. And then when I told, asked the other students what I missed, they were like, oh, uh, Betsy told us that you took the semester off and that you're not, you know, and I was like, wait, why is she like, I didn't know what she disclosed or, you know, and they were like, well, are you, everyone was concerned. And I was like, I was traumatized and shocked. And I was like, what is she saying? Why is she telling people my enrollment status? Even after I, I literally emailed people telling them not to do it. And it's against uh, FERPA in school regulations. So basically, this kind of continued. I was in and out of the hospital. And I was like, this is, this is insane. That like, she's like continuing to like, she was one of those like, she was one of those teachers who, who was like, she even told me this. She's like, uh, graduate school is supposed to break you down. And I was just like, whoa, like I need support. I don't need to be broken down, right? And granted, at this time, I was doing fine. I got two grants. I was going to seminars. I got like, I was going to conferences. I was really doing good in graduate school. I wasn't like slacking off. But the other students were like very competitive, which is the nature of school. And, and basically like I had more, I had more accomplishments than any of the other students there, you know? I was older than the vast majority of students and it was very competitive. And I think there was that kind of thing of like, who is this guy with a beard saying that he's marginalized doing, doing all of this stuff? You know, there was this kind of like animosity. So long story short is, you know, coming from Portland, Oregon and in the public school system, I asked for mediation. That's what you do. It's like, I was like, I don't know what's happening, but we need a third party mediator. And the, the director of the school offered to do the mediation. And I said, no, because, you know, even though I trust you and, and we're, you're my confidant, but mediators are third parties, you know? And that's, anyway, long story short is they didn't have a mediation system outside of the omnibus person. We met and basically it was this insane meeting where my professor tried to tell me that like, my trauma wasn't real and that other students at the time were going through more traumatic things and that as a woman as a white woman she uh faced so many hurdles in her life i mean it was just it was it was mind-boggling and i was like okay like that's fine and i was like let's resolve this you know and i said you know i will tell people what happened because what's happening right now is that people think that I'm mentally ill and they see me walking around and they don't know that I had surgery and that I had heart problems and that I was raised to the ER hemorrhaging. And they think that I'm, because that's what everyone assumes. Everyone assumes that if you're walking around that you have, you don't have an invisible dif disability. So he said, I'm going to tell people what happened. Uh, and I'm gonna go back to school. We, we, we signed up a contract. I was late to that seminar, you know, cause I had, I had, I basically had all of these surgery complications and the class was at night. We go through the class and, and basically she reneged on that promise. I never got a chance 
to tell people what was going on, even though we announced it that I was going to talk to people about what was going on. The next day, this was the end of the semester, the next day I was in my studio space. I, I was in a really, I, I had like, it was very hard to get trans healthcare in Phoenix. <laughs> it was hard as a newbie, you know, to get it. And I was having some issues with just all of these kind of post hysterectomy things. Um, I was in my studio space, which was kind of closed off. My next door neighbor, uh, she was a kind of older woman, Native American. She came in, looked, I was, I was like writing. She came in, she went out and I got this email that she sent to everyone basically saying how she can't work with, she, she, that she doesn't understand why I'm in the program, that I'm immature that she doesn't understand what, like basically this, this huge diatribe against me of just like not being able to be in the same room. And it clicked because the Betsy Schneider, the professor said, one of your cohorts has had a life-changing traumatic event. <laughs> and it was just like, what does that mean? <laughs> what? But it means that so-and-so next door who's upset is, is went through something really bad this semester and is really lashing out on me. And she had, I'm like, I put two and two together because she was doing, so basically she was doing like, a, I don't know, I honestly don't know what happened, but she was doing a photo essay on homeless people. And when I got back from surgery, all of a sudden there was around the clock, uh, there was around the clock, uh, security that was never there. Her photo essay was supposed to be about homeless people who were encamping around those. Anyway, I don't know what happened, but it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that this person who sent me a text message about like personal problems and Leopold can't deal with his personal problems is really like the person who's going through a, lot, a hard time, right? You know, uh, so I sent her an email, you know, I was just like, I apologize that I'm making you feel this way, whatever. I never got a response. Then, and, and basically what ended up happening was that I, uh, you know, I talked to some of, I talked to, uh, I talked to the, my new faculty advisor because I lost my faculty advisor after I had the meeting with the omnibus person because my faculty advisor was the head of the photography department. Um, quite rarely engaged with anyway. Um, and, but he was my next door neighbor too, but that comes later. So basically I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing the end of the year crits. Like this is a really hostile environment. I was put, put literally at the last of the, the crits. I'm like, I have this, my, like, I have this, like, I'm being literally cyber bullied by my professor and cohorts. I'm just not engaging. This is not safe. And then I, you know, I called the Office of, of Civil Rights and I said, I need to file a, um, a, a report, you know, because I talked before the omnibus person said that like made part of the contract or part of the, the agreement that we had was that we were going to have trans inclusive training because I, they didn't see how asking a trans person to talk about their, you know, uh, to talk about their medical issues as they were occurring in real time was not appropriate, right? They just didn't, but they just didn't even see it because they were like, I'm pro-gay marriage. I sleep with a woman. 
what's wrong, you know? So, and it was just, it was just one of those things that long story short, uh, I mean, it wasn't long story, but basically like I, it was just really stressful. I ended up uh, losing my housing um, and uh, when I was in, I was, it was the, I, I just, I was basically gaslit. They told the Office of Equity and Inclusion that I had hormone issues <laughs> from the surgery. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Two women, two women who identify as lesbians were saying that the trans guy has hormone issues and is extra sensitive about bullying in the department. What a move. <laughs> well, people need to keep their jobs. Oh. So I was in New York City. Well, I was in New York, upstate New York. I, I, had, I gave a presentation of my work. And yeah. So uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take off my video because it says my, my internet connection is un, unstable. Okay. So basically, I left Arizona, which basically had triple digits. And I, I had, I mean, basically my health was in ruins. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I lost the place that I was living at. I had oral thrush, which is basically a yeast infection. I'm like, it was, it was like, it was just, it was one thing after another that like, you know, part of it was from the surgery, but also a big part of it was just the amount of stress that I was dealing with, with school, with, with the cyberbullying, with the professors, it was just this nonstop shit show, you know? Um, so, you know, I filed a, a complaint. Uh, it was in May. Um, and I had, I had basically PTSD. Like, I couldn't write things down uh, because it was so traumatic, but also just because it was so outside of the box of traditional civil rights complaints. I said, you know, listen, I can't write all this stuff down. I sent them all of the emails that I got, which showed this just, this showed the, 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 the breach and FERPA violation. You know, I showed, I gave them all the emails and I told them this and they were like, okay, we'll go forward. But little did I know that the Office of Civil Rights is really there to protect them, not me. But I felt like I after receiving that email about asking that I not be a part of the program by someone in my program and no one saying anything about that, whether it was wrong. I even had the director of my program saying it was a choice that I didn't go to final crits, that I should have just, you know? So that was, that was really where it was at. So I ended up going to Rochester to, to, to show my work at a, a conference for photo books that of course no one else was doing that that summer. You know, I was the one who was like getting grants. I was the one who was in the future faculty program. I was the one that was like top of my class in the middle of like a health crisis, not that, right? So basically what ended up happening was saying that I was like, I'm gonna take a semester off. And I was like, I'm, until you get your shit together. Like I wanted to apply to a, a PhD program 
at the U of R, University of Rochester with Douglas Crimp, because at that time I was doing like book arts and literacy studies. So basically I was just saying, I wanna take time off from the program until things die down. Because at this point, it doesn't, it didn't, this was in, at the end of June. Nothing was being done. Nothing was being addressed. Uh, I wasn't getting interviewed from the, the Office of Civil Rights. And it was as if nothing has ha had happened. So the, uh, this is what they told me. They told me that the faculty met to discuss me studying off-site for the year. And they said no. They said that if I had health issues, that uh, I couldn't study anywhere else because I still have those health issues. And I was like, well, those health issues, are, it's really the, the, the fact is, is that it's a hostile work environment and I can't go back unless you resolve these things. Anyway, um, they ended up taking away my scholarship because they said I wasn't academically progressing. Um, and I sent, they accused me of threatening the faculty. And they banned me from campus. They told everyone on campus that I was a threat. And, and this, was after, this was after I posted uh, on a private Facebook page for graduate students, I posted the email, the cyberbullying that I got. Because basically after I was told, basically I had a conversation saying that I wasn't a good fit with the photo program. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. I was already accepted into the program, right? I was like, do you want me to transfer to another department? Because a lot of times, like my, the director of the program was like, oh, go to the performance artist, go to these. They're, they're less conservative and more queer friendly because she was queer herself. She packed the faculty with a lot of queer uh, professors. Um, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about when you tell me that like, so I kind of, the writing was on the wall. They were like, you're not a good fit with the program. So I didn't know they took away my scholarship during that meeting. They didn't tell me that. They just said that it was either I study at ASU or that's it, that I couldn't study anywhere else. So I basically put all of the emails on this Facebook page. You know, um, I, I don't even think I, I had this thing. I said, you know, this is basically the type of environment I, I'm dealing with. And the entire Facebook page was removed in less than 24 hours. And uh, they basically told, they announced to the campus that I was banned from campus, that I threatened a professor with physical harm and they literally called the cops on me. I had the cops, I was visiting my parents at that time and the cops called and left a message. I got all of these emails saying that I violated these codes of conduct and that I was told not to communicate with people in my department and that I still did it. Um, and they basically gaslit light, lit me. Um, yeah. Wow. And I was literally stranded in New York City. All of my stuff was, was in my studio space in Arizona. My home objects were, were at home. I couldn't appear in court. I had like a court. Uh, basically what ended up happening with my home life is that my roommate asked me to leave in the middle of like me being sick. And I said, I can't leave. Uh, she stepped, her and the landlord who lived on the property kept on banging down my door telling me that I had to leave. So I just basically ran away from my stuff. I went, I, I went to 
housing court. I told them what the situation was. They, they ruled in my favor. They said like, you know, they didn't have, basically they were like, basically I, I was defending myself in housing court, but because of being banned from campus and having the Tempe police, I didn't return. Uh, so it was just this, it was just this insanity. Uh, all of my health care was there. My, my follow-up care for my gynecologist. I went through medical menopause because I didn't have access to hormones, which is more vital for people with hysterectomies than anyone else. Um, and they basically slandered my name and said that I was, uh, yeah. In that case, is that still ongoing? Well, um, no. So that was in so that was in the summer of 2015. I filed a civil rights complaint. I went in person to the office of of, of civil rights, the department, of, and they were like, "It's not in our region, uh, but we'll we'll fax over." They didn't really take my notes. They said, "You know, we can't," because I was telling people, "I can't do this online. I have PTSD because of the cyberbullying. Everything." Uh, and I asked for disability accommodations from the Office of Civil Rights, and they said, we're, we're going to send it off to Denver. Denver never contacted me. Uh, I tried to go through my congressperson. They couldn't help. I'm like, I basically hit every single LGBT or legal organization trying to get help. I, I got in contact with Denver, and I was like, listen, it's, and, and a lot of people were saying, you know, it takes time. It, you know, but come October, nothing was happening. And I, I finally got through the Denver regional office and they were like basically uh, saying to us, uh, we're, the reason we haven't called back and scribed your complaint is because we're waiting. This was in the, the fall of 2000. Uh, uh, this is actually the fall of 2016. The reason we haven't called you back is that, you know, we're waiting for the, the Texas courts to decide whether or not transgender people are uh, counted as a part of Title IX. And I was like, well, yeah, I understand that, but you understand that, like, I have a disability claim, right? But, you know, these people, they have such a high caseload, they don't want to investigate anything. They just want to get their thing under their lust. I was like, while this is Title IX and I'm transgender, this has to do with disability and this has to do with PTSD. They still didn't want to do it. Uh, they talked to me literally for 20 minutes and I started at the beginning of my story, which was the FERPA violation. And they sent me a letter saying, we don't cover FERPA. And then you're not, you're not, uh, you're not being, this is not our jurisdiction. So I went to my congressperson who was Joseph Crowley at the time. He, he didn't want to help me. And I ended up going to because in New York City, I'm like, no one wanted to help me in New York City. Everyone in New York City was like, no, it's like you're a white guy trying to get into grad, like trying to get like back into. No, it's like everyone was like was pretty much dismissive. Um, and, and that includes my friends and people who were close to me. You know, it was basically like, oh, you're an artist, whatever. The art world is a horrible place, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Um, and, and basically... Uh, I tried to go through that and then Trump got elected and they stopped, uh, you know, I, I went, 
I went through the officer of, oh, so I, I went through the office of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because I'm a part of her congressional district. And at that time, what ended up happening was that I ended up, it was very hard for me to find any legal support because they had to be in the state of Arizona. Meanwhile, all of the LGBT attorneys were in some way associated with Arizona State University. I mean, the thing is, it's the, it's the largest employer in the whole state, right? So I, I did end up filing legal action. Um, they kept on, the, the school itself was represented by the district attorney of Arizona. And basically they tried to get it uh, dismissed every which way they could, and they couldn't because I had such a strong case. I'm like, I had literal, like the paper trail was like, I did not, they could not back up any allegation that they had of me being whatever. they never warned me that my behavior or anything like that. Um, but what it ended up being was that it just, the, the legal bills were so high. And in Arizona, they have a, a, a very uh, low bar of state, uh, I guess, just legal immunity. So basically what they were saying, we're the state, you can't sue us. And if you do sue us, the only thing you can get is maybe 20,000. And at that time, my legal bills, if I pursued it any longer, would have been higher than that. But I was basically, listen, and my lawyer was like, I can't do anything longer. So the school offered me basically this compromise. They said, we will uh, basically clean your educational records because at that time, they had all of these allegations. They, they, they took away courses that I took. Like they just basically just like whitewashed my educational record. We'll do that. And in exchange, you will never try to apply to us again. You cannot return here at all. And the only way that we will take all of that is if you say that and I think they offered me like $7,000, which is what I paid in tuition. It doesn't even cover anything. So they set, they, they wrote this up in a nice, you know, legal contract. Um, and I never signed it. But I, I do have that, that, that legal document. I tried to get, I tried every which way to get any coverage of it. I tried to do a petition to boycott uh, Starbucks, which is a big corporate sponsor of ASU. They have all of their employees do online classes. That didn't go anywhere. I asked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to do something. She didn't do anything. Um, every which way I went, I tried to get journalists. And it was just avenue after avenue, it was, it was I, I got dismissed. I said, I had gay journalists saying, why don't you just go to a different school? So it just, just ended up being where I had this petition, no one would share it. It was, I had, even though I had this document saying that from the state saying that they will, that not that they were wrong, but that my, that, that they, they were basically barring me from re, being readmitted. So, and that, that was in, uh, so that was in 2018 and 2019. And it just, hit this wall where it was like, it was this kind of thing where everyone was saying, well, LGBT journalists should cover it. And then there were no more LGBT journalists because all of the massive layoffs that were happening. 
And then other places, it was just this kind of thing of like, because I didn't have anyone to vet my story, everyone thought, and because my story was gaslighting and not sexual abuse or physical abuse, and it was outside of the trans bathroom narrative, it just, people just didn't believe me. You know, people just believed like I was mentally ill and that the story was so far-fetched and that they didn't understand why someone would retaliate against a graduate student like that. So, you know, so yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, that completely falls into so many traps of everyone just wants to say, oh, this isn't really, doesn't have to do with us, other people should handle it, yada, yada, yada. But no one's, no one's gonna look at it and have it stick. I'm like, I'm like, there's this, even, even the, the New York Gay and Lesbian Association, like, you know, I was doing, I was like writing all of my legal stuff. And they're like, well, this doesn't, you know, they didn't do this because you were trans. And I was like, well, they did. I'm like, normal, traditionally normal, like, people don't get treated this way when they have medical emergencies, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, but I think everyone just has this, they only have this one standard narrative. And, and even, even in New York City, like the New York, the anti-violence project, I asked, I'm like, because at this point, like, you know, I was basically gaslit, you know, I lost everything, you know, and, and, and because I wasn't sexually assaulted, like, even I have friends who say to me, come on, get over it, you weren't raped, you know, um, it was just like, I just have this, everywhere I go, it's like every LGBT, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, I went to them, and they were like, no, this is not us, and so it's, this, it's this just this constant you know, it's just like this constant thing where it's like, well, you know, you're not dead. You're not, you're not, uh, you haven't been murdered. Um, and there's just like this very small, narrow um, thing where people, you know, it's just like, I, I wasn't the right victim, you know, because I'm male appearing, I'm white. And it was just this kind of thing where it's like, you know, this is just not, this is not the avenue that we think is trans rights, you know? So, you know, meanwhile, like, I'm an educator. I can't go back to school. With, like, I, I've been subbing in New York City public schools, and the kids are fine, but it's just, you know, this, that amount of trauma in the educational setting is just, I can't go back, you know? It's like, and I'm a lifelong teacher, you know, and it's been, I can't get employment. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's been like, you know, five years of just, like, nonstop being dismissed, but also just like not being supported because I don't fit. I'm just not, when you say transgender rights, it doesn't include me because people think that I have privilege, you know? Yeah. And also, I mean, like the such, there's such limited resources to like push for legal cases for trans people that if it's not one that like ticks all the boxes of like most marginalized along all the axes that's deprioritized for better for worse well i make the main thing i'm like what the aclu said was basically that i have to i had to prove my sanity which i did you know i had tons of there was nothing they didn't have anything but the main thing is that a lot of times those cases that they choose 
there's nothing that has to be proved, right? So I think that was kind of like the biggest thing. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's just, but I think a lot of people think that, that because there are these quote unquote civil rights laws that they're followed, but there's no enforcement of them. You know, and I don't think people understand that. Yeah, and even, I'm like, even the thing with Starbucks, I'm like, that makes sense. But, you know, I think it was really hard. Like I, I just didn't get any, I wasn't able to get any buy-in. You know, I wasn't able to have anyone champion and say like, this is messed up a retweet here, a, it's like no one wanted to touch it because it had, it, it was gaslighting and it was, it wasn't the, the, the standard narrative of like so-and-so wasn't able to go to the bathroom, you know? And, and I think also, especially to my age, I'm like, if this happened to an undergrad, maybe another association would get into it, but there really isn't like a graduate, you know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't, yeah, so. Um, yeah. You mentioned, um, this kind of like tracking with the idea that trans people are just too sensitive, overreactionary, and all that. I was wondering whether you could discuss that a little more. Well, it's interesting. It's like my first disability accommodation at ASU was for PTSD. And, um, and, uh, and I don't think people know that what that means. I'm like, it means a lot of things, but it has to do with being exposed to trauma and kind of like this kind of all of these, uh, you know, I think a lot of what other people were reacting to, and even in my, my personal interpersonal relationship with friends is that, you know, the trauma of being of being trans over a long period of time, you're, you're, you're constant, like, as a trans person, I'm constantly re-experiencing trauma. And that is a sensitivity, right? So even if, like, for example, that noose incident, right? Recently, the NASCAR guy finding a noose. And granted, yeah, I mean, he reacted to it as in this is what always happens to me. And even or not, whether or not people intended to put a noose or wanted to like pull a garage door down, he re-experienced his whole life experience of being excluded, marginalized, and treated differently with the way a rope was tied. So even if people think that like what I experience on a daily basis isn't transaggressive or transphobic, every all of the the all of the, I re-experience all of that on a daily basis. So, you know, in, in some ways it is true. Like I am ultra sensitive because I, I, in, I, uh, every time I experience all of these things, it's, it's just like rehashing all of, all of that. But, you know, I mean, that's, what are you going to do? You know, it's like, that's what PTSD is. You know, that's what, that's what, um, you know, I, I don't even, it, it took me, even in, in New York City, I wasn't even able to get a healthcare provider who was trans specific to give me a PTSD diagnosis. Cause I was working for the board of ed and I got into these very like hostile work environment 
with other teachers and just, you know, just other, just normal board of ed New York City bullshit. And I was like, oh, can you give me a PTSD diagnosis? And they were like, oh, no, we can't. You weren't physically assaulted. And I was like, with what, you know, with all I went through, they still were saying that you do not have PTSD. Like you have not been through enough trauma or you have not been sexually or physically assaulted. So, you know, in a way it's like, I just feel like, you know, the transgender experience, especially trans male has just been so dismissed, you know? And, and, you know, I had, I don't, I'm, I'm not in touch with most of my friends because they, they just looked at it as like, you're a white, you're a guy. They don't see, just like my professor, she didn't see that she had cisgender privilege, you know? And, and that, you know, because I, because I'm, my experience is constantly being compared to trans women, my, my experience, it just, it just, it just doesn't compare, you know? What you said about that idea of like, oh, you're not dead. So it doesn't like, (laughs) you should be fine. You're doing pretty good. When was that our bar? When did we end up with that being the standard? Yeah. Yeah. I make it, but it's true. It's like, it's, it's, you know, I think trans men don't, aren't allowed to take up space at all. And, you know, we're, we're seeing, and like, we feed into this myth that like, if you present as male, your life is hunky dory, you know? I, and I don't, I'm like, while I have like a, a degree of physical safety, if I don't, you know, present as like an effeminate guy, it's like, you know, I still don't have access to healthcare in the same way. I still have an employment history and a socialization history. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, I just, my narrative and my life experience threatens the vast majority of cisgender women's like belief systems. And when you, when I challenge that, this is what I get in return, you know? Um, so, it, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just one of those things like, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just been a very, like the past five years have been a very kind of dehumanizing experience. Like even right now with all of the, the, uh, the pride protests, like I look at that and, and to me it's, it's triggering because all I see is I see my friends who, who say that they're pro-trans, but it's a performance. It's a spectacle. You know, when you ask people, you know, where was the mutual aid when I needed it? When I needed housing, the only housing I got was like really transphobic housing from my parents, right? My friends didn't want to put me up. They didn't see that. I, they didn't, you know, they were like, oh no, like you need, we're not your family, you know? And, and that's the thing is that like, there's this, you know, it's one thing to like post something on your social media page about how like trans lives matter, but in, in the day to day people, it's, it's a performance, you know, and, 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 you know, and I'm not the only one who, who experienced like exclusion in academia, but I did like have it physically fuck with me, you know? Um, I, I was physically harmed. I wasn't sexually harmed, but I was physically harmed. Um, but it's still, it, it's still something that like, you know, I go into artist spaces who, where they are very, they say that they're trans supportive, but I still am 
not included or and I'm still marginalized. And the thing is, it's like I, you know, they want a token, you know? And if they support me, they're not gonna like check off the boxes. They're not gonna look good, right? So, you know, in a way it's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, inherent in being trans is, is that, you know, I'm always telling people this is who I am and this is how I exist. And people are always arguing with me about that. And, and I don't see that ever going away, no matter how many Marsha P statues are put up or how many parades where they have the, the trans flag, that's not something that, that will happen in my lifetime, you know? And there's, you know, and people don't like to talk about how it's a facade, you know? It's, it's the new current thing that everyone is into. It's the TV show that everyone is watching, but it's not, it's not the day-to-day. -day. People aren't supporting trans people in the day-to-day. People are, uh, people are uh, pathologizing them, and they're just, they're, they, they're, they're just, it's just, yeah. You also mentioned um, kind of the struggles of getting care for long-term HRT use as opposed to just getting on it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So. I was basically literally stranded in New York without hormones. Like I literally have bricks. Like I pour hormones. Just it's what you do as a trans person. Not so much the younger people. The younger people are like, why? And it's like when you're older, you you know you you. I hoard medication all the time. I don't know, but basically, when in New York, New York has very limited. I couldn't get any hormones. So I went through, my, my parents didn't want to pay full hormones. They were like, they didn't know about my surgery. I kept that all on the DL. Um, so they didn't know what was wrong. They, didn't, I, they never found out. That's why I, I changed my name. They never found out what Arizona State University did because they would, they would never, they didn't know I had a top surgery and they would be really against me having the hysterectomy. So when I came to New York, I basically, it was like, uh, I, you know, I went to the center. They weren't too, um, you know, they, they have a very like, uh, we deal with people starting hormones. They have a very, they didn't really know what to do with me. Uh, I tried to get into counseling and it was like, no one, it was just like the, the, you know, I was in the middle of like a mental health crisis, literally. And there was nothing there. It was like, oh, well, we can wait, you know, two months, we can get you somewhere. And it's like, well, you know, it's like I'm actively being abused right now. You know, it was just like, it was a shit show. But more importantly, like Callan Lord was not accepting any new people. I ended up going to a community clinic in Williamsburg. The social workers there thought I, you know, they were just like, you know, whatever, everything's fine. It was just basically, I, they, I didn't fit their kind of, model for someone who needed help. Even my doctor, my doctor was a trans man. And, you know, he started me off at a very low dosage. Um, it just, they just were, they just did not know how to deal with someone uh, post hysterectomy, you know? So it was just, it was just kind of like a level of care. And, and I think like it was, you know, inhabiting this 
body as like a white male who's educated. Everyone just thought I was insane. They're like, why do you have all these problems? Why don't you have people taking care of you? Why don't you have a safe place to live? It was just, everything was like victim blaming, you know? And it was like, all of their resources were, are very specific and they just didn't think any of my needs were, were urgent, you know? So it took me a while to get uh, proper healthcare. And I actually ended up going to, <laughs> I actually ended up going to Long Island to get healthcare because um, only, only just because it just got to this, it was just so triggering to revisit those, the clinics in Brooklyn and Manhattan where I was denied care. And I asked, and in my, in my experience, uh, especially the fact that I was on Obamacare, you're basically uh, fighting for these really scarce resources. I said, listen, I'll take, I'll add a half an hour to my commute. Instead of going to Manhattan, I'll just go to Great Neck. So I ended up going to, they have a, a trans health clinic in Great Neck, which is the border, you know, whatever, the border of, of Nassau and Queens. And I go there and I get seen there. And it's, it's part of Northwell Health. And this was, this was in 2016. Now I think Northwell Health is more in the city, uh, you know, the, the hospital system. But at the time, it was like, it was basically like every time I was get, getting mental health care in Brooklyn or in New York City, it was like I wasn't getting anywhere because it was just like, it was literally like, you know, because I wasn't a, a trans woman, because I wasn't a person of color, it was like, it was literally like, I could not get a PTSD diagnosis. I'm like, I still couldn't get one in Northwell Health, but at least I was able to like, be at, at a, not be in a healthcare setting where I was competing with, with people whose, whose needs were so, um, uh, what's the word? It, it was just a, more, of, it was less of a triage. Let's put it that way. As we kind of like approach two hours, I don't know what your time frame is, but um, do you want to talk a little bit also about current effects of COVID, how that's impacting you, um, and then like anything else that you kind of want to address before we wrap things up? Well, it's funny, like, so COVID, I'm like on some hand, it's been triggering, right? Because they're all like, oh, LGBT people are, should have a safe place to like, you know, shelter in place during healthcare crises. And I'm like, my friends didn't get that memo, <laughs> you know? So in, in one hand, the COVID thing is that, you know, it's all talk, you know? It's like people say things and they do things, you know? And it's like, and in some hands, it's like the thing with COVID is that everyone's at the same place as me now. It's like, I haven't been able to get a job. Uh, I'm like, I work, but I haven't been able to like change careers or get meaningful employment. So, and it's not that everyone is experiencing massive disasters in their work life, but in a way it's been, been this kind of, um, it's lovely. It's like, I've already been economically devastated. Like I owe $15,000 to my lawyer. I have horrible credit. You know, I defaulted on two credit cards and, you know, so in some ways it's like, 
I don't even know what my life will look like in post-COVID because I couldn't even get a job at the height of the economy, you know? I couldn't even get health, you know, so it's, so in a way it's kind of like, but in another way, it's like, I've already had the worst. You know what I'm saying? It's like, everyone's like saying like, oh, I'm socially isolated. I've done, I'm like, I don't speak to people I know, you know, just because they were, they were so toxic and so dismissive of my experience and did not believe me or want to believe me or even could, you know? So in some ways, I don't really experience COVID as being that traumatic because I've had so much other trauma. And one thing that I've realized with trauma is that some way in some house, one way to get over trauma is to have other traumatic things happen to you. So I don't, not that, you know, for me, in a way it's like, yeah, this might be traumatic, and I do feel vulnerable and I do feel like uh, marginalized with my health care. But in, in other ways, it's like, uh, this is something, this is, I, I'm noticing with my PTSD that this is something that like is distancing from what happened at ASU, if that makes sense. But in some ways, it's like, I don't think that I, you know, yeah, it, it, it's, I also feel like career-wise, art-wise, because I wasn't vetted, like I can't even claim unemployment as a self-employed artist because of all of that time period that all of my possessions were still at ASU. And I wasn't able to sell my books. And, you know, so it's, there are all of these things where it's like, I wasn't even able to get grants when I was in New York City because, you know, I just... So it's all these things where I just, I wasn't vetted, you know, and now post COVID, you know, everyone's talking about supporting trans artists and it's like, well, I, I'm just not seen as that, you know, I'm just, I wasn't in the game. I wasn't, even though I have this long CV of history and like my book is in like over a dozen special collections, I just, I didn't make the bar and it doesn't seem that, and it seems like post COVID, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll be further marginalized, if that makes sense. What do you think it would take for people to kind of, like, offer a support that's not, that's not so contingent on being the, in the, the worst position, but kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, recognizing a lot of different levels and forms and manifestations of trauma and difficult experiences, et cetera? So the interesting thing is, is that other trans men do not support. Some do, some don't. And I think that, and even with my book, a lot of people didn't like my book because they thought that it was too uh, navel gazing and woe is me. But I think that's a step. And I, th I, I feel like in the trans community itself, that once uh, it has to happen there, because, and, and I see that now, you know, I, I understand Black Lives Matter. I'm not a proponent of all lives matter, but when you see Black trans lives matter, 
that is feeding into that idea that like white trans people, it, it sets up what, you're, what you were just talking about, right? So for me, I think the trans, I, I feel like other trans people shouldn't dismiss each other, right? And that I don't see that changing anytime soon. That, that, that I, when I engage with people, it seems like this cultural phenomena, phenomena that they always say, oh, I shouldn't complain, at least I'm not that, right? So I, I feel like that is the next step. And I don't really see that changing anytime soon because I, I see people constantly, uh, I don't want to say being grateful, but saying that they have no right to complain and that there are these hierarchies of this is the most uh, persecuted and then there's this and then there's that. And there's little room for like different narratives and that everyone is, is so consumed with privilege and access and guilt that like there really isn't any, everyone is just tearing each other down and creating these kind of, uh, you know, constructing these identities and experiences that are, are worse off than other people, that it, it, it's just this, uh, it's just really kind of dysfunctional and, and, and in a ways it's, it's, and it's not even anything that is, is concrete. You know, it's like when people, like for me, when I see people protesting and saying like black lives matter or black trans lives matter, I know what they're saying. Right. But in a way it, it's, it's just an appearance. It's just a, it's, it's just a, a meme. It's just a, a hashtag. People aren't, actively doing anything people don't a lot of times i don't think people have that much uh active participation with trans black women of color who are on the margins so it's easy for them to say black trans lives matter but they're not really going to uh be more inclusive of the trans people in their lives who do have you know what i'm saying like so i feel like in a way it's this in some ways, it's, it's easy to say this is, this is where we need to put our attention because it's not in their inner circle, if that makes sense. So, I don't know. I, I'm pretty cheap. I'm like, I'm, I've always been a, a pessimist and never a happy camper. So, but I don't really see all of the protests. I just think it's a, it looks, just looks like a good time. You know, I don't really see. It's, it's just one way to get on the bandwagon. Uh, I don't really see things kind of changing in, in any kind of meaningful way, you know. Do you have any last thoughts or things you'd like to add as we wrap this up? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And it's been really great talking with you. Thank you. I appreciate your, your time. <laughs>